tonight we're going to look at a portion of scripture. After the sermon, it'll be song of response. And after that, it's probably going to be perhaps the most important element of the evening, which is an opportunity for you to stick around and to pray. Um, we've prepared a, a video uh, along with some music in the background that will enable you to focus in a different way on what tonight means. And so I want to encourage all of you uh, to stick around tonight as long as you can and to spend time with God before you leave. Mark chapter 15, verses 33 to 39 is our text for tonight. It says, At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Just so you know who did it. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. When you read the Gospels, all four Gospel writers show that the critical events of Jesus' life happens in the dark. At night. And here in, in the book of Mark, chapter 15, we find ourselves from noon to 3 p.m., it says. Sixth hour to the ninth hour was noon to 3 p.m. And the Bible says that it became totally dark. Completely pitch dark. Why? There have been some secular historians who have tried to give natural causes to this darkness by saying, some people, that it was an eclipse. The problem with that is that eclipses don't last this long. Eclipses don't last more than a few seconds and possibly a minute or so. We're talking about three hours of pitch total darkness. Some people said that it was perhaps a desert storm. There are some desert storms that blanket the skies in such a way that it becomes really dark. And that's one rationale for some people to this event. The problem with that is that the Bible says it happened during the Passover, which happens to be the wet season. What we're seeing in Mark chapter 15, along with the other gospel writers, is a supernatural darkness. And that means it signifies something. It means something. What is that? It helps us to know that physical darkness in Scripture signifies spiritual darkness. Physical darkness in Scripture signifies spiritual darkness. In Luke chapter 22, verse 52, it's Luke's account of the last couple days of Jesus' life. Jesus is being captured by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And in his encounter, this is what Jesus says in verse 52. Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and yet you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour, he says, when darkness reigns. 
Jesus here uses a metaphor of physical darkness to describe their spiritual darkness, the spiritual darkness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. What is spiritual darkness? What is spiritual darkness? What does the Bible have to say? Spiritual darkness is us turning away from God and facing something else besides God as the center of our lives. Spiritual darkness is when you and I turn away from God. When you and I turn away from God and we face something else besides God as the center of our lives. Turning away from God as a source of true light and true life. And facing something else as the center of our lives. The scripture describes as spiritual darkness. It helps us to know that in scripture... Then God is always likened to the sun or to the light. And the Bible says that the sun or the light is the source of all truth because it is by it that we see everything else. And the sun or the light is the source of all life because without it, everything withers and dies. And so the Bible says over and over again in different ways, God is the source of all truth. God is the source of all life. And, of course, Jesus comes and in self-declaration. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. What does this mean practically? Let's drill this into our hearts because we realize that if you orbit around God, if you center around the sun, then your life has truth in it and your life has life in it. But if you and I center on anything else, if you and I orbit our lives around anything else, if we turn away from God, if we make anything else the center of our lives, if we orbit around anything else, if there is something more important to us than God, if we make anything else the source of our warmth, source of our hope, if we make our career, our relationships, our family, if we make anything else the center of our lives, if we make anything else more important than God in our lives. We can come to church, we can pray, we can worship, we can do all these things, but if we turn away from God and face something else, if we turn away from God and our lives orbit around anything else, the Bible says that the result is spiritual darkness. Spiritual darkness. It doesn't matter what that is. Functionally, if you and I are turning away from the source of truth and turning away from source of life, then the result is spiritual darkness. What does spiritual darkness look like? Spiritual darkness, what does spiritual darkness look like? We can go ahead and look at physical, literal darkness and perhaps get some cues. First of all, darkness brings disorientation. You and I live in a city in which even if we go out at night because there's so much light outside that we don't really know what real darkness is. But if you have found yourself in absolute and utter total darkness, then you can't see anything, not even an inch in front of you. And if you stay in utter and total darkness for any length of time, it can have a terrible effect on you, and that effect can be described as nothing less than disorientation. 
In disorienting darkness, you can't see forward. You can't see where you're going. In disorienting darkness, you can't even know yourself. You can't even see yourself. You don't even know where your body parts are. In complete order, disorienting darkness, you can't even see those around you, friend or foe. You're totally isolated. In disorienting darkness, you can't see yourself. In disorienting darkness, you can't see forward. In disorienting darkness, you can't see anybody else around you. And the Bible says, spiritually, if you and I center on anything else besides God, the same thing happens. What do you mean, you say? In spiritual darkness, you can't see forward. If anything else besides God becomes more important to you, first, you'll have a problem of purpose, a sense that you know where you're going. Living for money and for power and for career and for relationship and love for a period of time feels like you have something to live for, but you'll realize soon enough that it's not big enough for your soul. And you start to experience meaninglessness and purposelessness. Spiritual darkness, you can't see forward. You lack purpose in your life. Spiritual darkness, you also can't see yourself. When you put your hope on anything else besides God, you also have a loss of identity. You'll have an identity that's fragile, that's insecure, because it's based on things you're centering your life on, like human reproval, like performance, and you don't even know who you are. Spiritual darkness, you can't see yourself. Spiritual darkness, you can't see forward. Lastly, spiritual darkness. You're isolated. You're so wrapped around the things that you're living for that it's making you scared. It's making you angry. It's making you proud. It's making you anxious. It's making you so driven that you have completely isolated yourself from other people. You have no community. Spiritual darkness. Radical disorientation. When you make anything else more important than God in your life. Am I speaking to anyone tonight? Am I speaking to anyone tonight who finds himself, herself in spiritual darkness? You lack purpose for your life. You don't know where you're going. You have an utter total loss of identity. You have lived your life You have lived your life at the beck and call of everyone else besides God. Spiritual darkness, you are isolated, you're alone, there's no community. That's not all. Darkness not only leads to disorientation, darkness leads to disintegration. In the Bible, darkness and disintegration always go together. And part of that, you and I both know, simply comes from the fact that when you take something living out of the light long enough, if you take a plant or any living thing out of the light long enough, it dies, it withers, it falls apart. But the Bible is talking about something even more drastic than that, you see. Because if you go to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1-1 tells us what Genesis 1-0 was like. 
Genesis 1.1 and 1.3 tells us, God says, and let there be light. That means that before God brings light, there was darkness. And the Bible says in Genesis that darkness was upon the earth. And the earth was without form and without void. And there was emptiness, formlessness, and there was chaos. And they all go together. And God comes along and says, let there be light. In the creation account, light triumphs over darkness. Order triumphs over chaos. Light triumphs over death. Meaning and purpose triumphs over emptiness and formlessness. But listen, the Bible says that when you move away from God, to the degree that you move away from God in any way, it not only leads to disorientation, but ultimately leads to disintegration. The Bible says that when you and I move away from God, and to the degree that we move away from God, it leads to chaos. We're literally moving towards uncreation. When we turn our faces away from God, when we move away toward from God, the Bible says we're literally moving back towards uncreation. We're literally moving back towards darkness and chaos and emptiness and void. Let me be very practical here tonight. I want to be a good preacher. But if this becomes my son, if this becomes my light, if this becomes more important to me than God, if it becomes my real significance, my warmth, my hope, if this becomes my love and more important for me than Jesus' love for me, then the result is disintegration. When criticism comes, it's discouraging. But when it's my ultimate, when it's the thing that I've centered my life on, it's not just discouragement, it's disintegration. It's inordinate guilt. It's devastation. It's turning inside. Two people are in love. They love each other more than, if they love each other more than they love God, if they build their lives on each other more than God's love, then minor fights will become major fights, and major fights will become cataclysmic fights. Why? Because you can't take the other person's displeasure. You can't take the other person's failure because you have established and set your entire identity, being, hope, meaning, and significance in that person. And your entire world is shaken. Your entire center is shaken. Your very foundation is shaken. If you center anything else besides God, spiritual darkness that comes into your life doesn't just result in disorientation, but radical disintegration. Life without God, life away from God, life away from the light and the source of truth, the Bible says, leads to chaos, emptiness, purposelessness, void. And ultimately, even death. Here's the amazing thing, you guys. We all know that this happens partially and only partially in our world, in this life. Because you know what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1? It says that God is holding this world with the word of his power. That means in spite of our sin, in spite of our evil, in spite of our, 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 how we're living, God's grace, God's grace, God's amazing grace holds this thing together with the word of his power. And the disintegration, the disintegration and the disorientation that we feel in our sin, in our sin, is only partial here in this world because God's grace, because of God's grace. But listen to this. What would happen when God finally gives us, when God finally gives the human race what we want? 
And do you know what it is that we really want? We want to be free to live our lives as we please. We want to be free from his presence. What we really want is we want to say, God, we want you to leave us alone. And the Bible says when God finally does that, the disintegration that we feel and the disorientation that we feel won't be partial, but it'll be total. And that's what judgment day is. Judgment day is God giving us what we want. Judgment day is us saying to God, God, leave me alone. And God saying, fine, I will leave you alone. And the result is total and utter disintegration and disorientation. Total chaos, total emptiness, total void. The book of Exodus tells us about the ten plagues of Egypt. Do you know what the ten plagues of Egypt was? Those weren't just magic tricks. The ten plagues of Egypt were a foretaste of judgment day. There were foretastes of God removing himself and giving us what we want. It's the world going back to Genesis 1-0. It's us going back to the horrors of uncreation of darkness and chaos. That's why when Moses raises the rod of God's justice over Egypt, they begin to experience in those plagues horrors of judgment day, of uncreation. Water doesn't work as water. It became blood. The sun didn't work like light. There's total darkness. Lice, gnats, flies, and disease and boils. Nature doesn't work as nature. And then the firstborn all dies. What was that? That is a foretaste of judgment day. Horrors of uncreation. It's going back to judgment day. Going back to Genesis in a foretaste of judgment day. And all the prophets throughout the Old Testament said that when God finally gives us human beings what we want, when God finally says to us, you want to be free from my presence, you want me to leave you alone, then fine. What we will receive is total and utter chaos. Disintegration. That's what judgment day is, and it's only fair. God's giving us what we want, but what we really want without God will be utter and total chaos, disintegration, formlessness, and emptiness. The prophet Isaiah, looking at this day, says this in Isaiah 13, verse 9, See, the day of the Lord, that's judgment day, is coming. A cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. So what hope then is there for any of us? Judgment day is coming. And we deserve it. We're only getting what we want. We're only getting what we want. Life without God. What we want is for God to leave us alone. And if that happens, then the result will be judgment day. Uncreation, disintegration, and disorientation. A day that we fully deserve. What hope then is there for us? 
What hope was there for all of humanity for a judgment day that was coming? And friends, tonight, I want to tell you what hope there was 2,000 years ago. Because on Calvary 2,000 years ago, Good Friday tonight tells us that someone was judged for us. This tonight, what we celebrate 2,000 years ago, was Judgment Day before the Judgment Day. This night that we celebrate and commemorate is the night where God sends His only Son and says the judgment, the wrath, the darkness, the disorientation that humanity deserves for what they're asking and what they want. I am not going to pour it out on them. I will pour it upon my Son and He will be judged for your behalf. The judge of the universe was judged so that we would not be judged and be spared our judgment day. That's what tonight represents. The darkness is coming down on Jesus. The darkness is coming down on Jesus. The eternal justice of God that, that, that eradicates and demolishes sin, evil, and death is eradicating and demolishing him. Hebrews 12.1 says, In God, all things hold together, but Jesus Christ, my friends, my brothers and sisters, on the cross is unraveling. The creator of the universe is becoming uncreated. The maker of the universe is on the cross and he is disintegrating before the world's eyes. That's what tonight is all about. He, the son of God, is experiencing absolute infinite disintegration of his soul, of his body. He is experiencing and inflicting on himself the horrors of uncreation on sinners. Said sinners deserved on himself. He is bearing it himself. He is bearing it himself. Our judgment day is coming down on Jesus in this text. For every sin, for every evil, for every injustice, for every time you and I have declared and will declare, God, leave me alone. I want to be free from you. Leave me from your presence. Every declaration of saying, God, I want to be my own God. For every declaration... For every single person of this traitor human race, Jesus Christ experiences on himself the darkness. His blood and his water flow mingled down to him, says. It's coming down on him. He's getting the judgment day of a traitor race, the perfect, sinless son of God. I wonder if this is good news to anybody. Jesus Christ is getting our judgment day. The darkness is coming down on him and he is experiencing in his flesh, in his body, in his soul, uncreation, chaos, emptiness, void, wrath.
you know what I realized all this year as I studied this text? As horrible as it is to have spear on your side, as horrible it is to die of suffocation, as horrible it is to be tortured and beaten and to have nails put into your hands and feet, as horrible it is to be betrayed by your own family and friends. I realized this year that the cry of Jesus doesn't mention any of that. Do you notice? Jesus Christ starts crying out, but he doesn't say, my friends, my friends, or my head, or my head, or my hands, or my hands, or my feet, or my feet. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that cries out, my God, my God, why? What's going on here? Why is Jesus crying out, my God, my God? I realize this year, you guys, for the first time, that Jesus Christ has suffered more than any other man has ever suffered in history. When he cries out, my God, my God, it is a language of intimacy. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, on the cross, Jesus Christ is losing God. He's losing God. Anybody here that's ever heard these words, I never want to see you again or talk to you again. Knows the devastation that that brings to lose a spouse in a death or divorce or to lose somebody that you love in a divorce or death. The psychologist will tell you is the most traumatic thing that can and will happen to somebody. And the longer the love, the deeper the love and the greater the torment from the loss, from the loss. There is no torment like the loss of love. But look at what's going on here. Look at what's going on on the cross on Calvary. This is between God the Father and God the Son. These are two beings who have been loving each other for all of eternity from the very beginning of time. There's been no human love that could compare to the love between the Father and the Son. No love in human history could ever compare to this. This love between the Father and the Son has been infinitely long and eternally long. And Jesus Christ on the cross is losing that. He is losing that. And the loss of that love, compared to that, A spear on his side is a flea bite. That's why Jesus Christ, the Son of God, cries, My God, my God, and not my hands and my hands or my feet, my feet. The torment of his suffering is the loss of fellowship between himself and his heavenly Father that he's known for all of eternity. And we come to tonight. Which is, why would Jesus do this? Why would Jesus, 2,000 years ago, go to that cross and do this? And the answer is, for you! For you and for me! For you and for me! Because you and I have to have our judgment day. Jesus needed to take our judgment day so that we would not be judged. Jesus Christ took the punishment and the wrath of God and disintegrated on the cross so that we can be healed. Jesus Christ on the cross was infinitely separated and cast out so that we would never be forsaken and left. Jesus Christ was abandoned by the Father so that you and I would never be abandoned by the Father. 
Jesus Christ pays the penalty on the cross so that you and I would never have to pay the penalty for us. Jesus Christ carries the sins of the world, receives the darkness and the justice of God and the wrath of God and experiences the horrors of uncreation. Why? For you and for me. What greater love is there? What greater love is there? Do you know this Savior? Does the mention of his name melt your heart, friends? Does the mention of and the knowledge of who he is and what he has done for you break your heart tonight? Does the knowledge that the darkness that fell on Jesus for you and for me Does that melt your heart? Does that capture your heart? Does that blow you away? Does it make you want to fall down and worship this Jesus? What is the cross? The cross is God absorbing the debt for sinful humanity upon himself. What does this mean? Let me apply it real quick for those of you that are Christian and for those of you that are not. And we're done. For those of you that are Christian, here's what this means and why tonight is so profoundly important for us to recover, rediscover week in and week out. And why your pastor, why I over and over again every Sunday point you to the cross and say, my friend, therein lies the solution to all of your problems. And therein lies the solution to the problems of our world today. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul throughout his letters teases out the implications of the cross and what that means. And in one place it says this in Romans chapter 6. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Paul is making the argument here that when you put your faith in Christ, the moment that you believe in Christ, there is an identification that happens. And the identification is between that repentant sinner and Christ himself. And the moment that we repent of our sins and receive him as our Savior and Lord, at that moment, everything that happened to Jesus, the Bible says, applies to us in such a way that everything that happened to Jesus, God sees as if it's happened to us. That means that Christ dying, taking the penalty for our sins, our sins on the cross, means that our union with Jesus, our identification with Jesus means that we died to the penalty of sin. So there is not now, not evermore, penalty to be paid for sins. Is that good news? It is great news. It is great news. There is no child of God, listen to me, there is no more penalty coming your way for your sins because Jesus Christ took it all and went to the cross with it. 
And that's gospel truth. We also die, though, to the power of sin as well, Paul tells us. In the very same text, he says, when Jesus rose from the dead, not only did he defeat the penalty of sin, but also the power of sin once and for all as well. And that means our identification with Christ in his not just death, but resurrection means that we have died to sin's power, sin's domination, and sin's influence in our lives. It means that we can live our lives without sin controlling us, mastering us. We can live our lives in victorious living because Jesus Jesus Christ died and rose, defeating, canceling, breaking sin's power, sin's dominion, and sin's authority over our lives. Is that good news? It's great news. It is great news. You don't have to live the way you used to live because you are not the person you used to be. You are a new creation. You are a new creation. But even more astonishing for a child of God, for a Christian, Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 5, God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And this is such amazing news that you could spend your entire life trying to wrap your brain around it. Because Paul doesn't say, he listen to what, he does not say, and you know what, one day God will raise us up with Christ, and one day God will seat us in the heavenly realms. You see what Paul says? He says that right now, not in the future when you behave better, not in the future when you've performed well enough, not in the future when you can prove that you can be a good Christian. He says that right now, today, if you're a child of God, today, where are you seated? You are seated at the right hand of God. Do you know what that means? That means that if you're a child of God because of his work on the cross and his resurrection, if you're a child of God, tonight you stand before God holy, you stand before God righteous, tonight you stand before for God, as beautiful and as wonderful as Jesus Christ is in the Father's eyes. Is that good news? It is great news. You can clap to that. It is great news. It is great news. That means, and this sounds extreme, but listen, that means that this, regardless of what you plan on doing tonight after this, what you plan on doing tomorrow, what you plan on doing next week, when Good Friday and Easter is gone, if you're a child of God, you will stand before God always, always, always holy, righteous, without blemish because of who Christ is and what he has done for you. Your standing before God is not dependent on your behavior, your righteousness, but on Christ's righteousness and what Christ has done. Always, always. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8, 1, and there is now, right now, today, at this moment, not when you do better, not when you perform well enough, not when you can get over that sin. Today, right now, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are so right with God that nothing will be able to separate you from his love. Do you see how that can transform your life? 
And of course, many of us are sitting and saying, but you don't realize how wicked I am. You don't realize how sinful I am. You don't realize how much I mess up. The gospel of Jesus Christ says, although we are more wicked and more sinful than we had dare imagined, we are more loved and more accepted and more, more precious in his eyes than we had dared hope at the same time. You are in him. You are in him more loved and more accepted than you dare hope. Child of God, if you are suffering tonight, I wonder if I'm talking to somebody who is suffering. And when you and I suffer, it is absolutely, absolutely natural for us to say, God, why? Why? We all do that. And I find it absolutely amazing that Christianity is the only faith that says that God himself actually cried out in suffering. Why? You say, what good is that? And I tell you for an infinite good. Because when you look at the cross of Jesus Christ in suffering, will that give you the reason for why you are suffering and why you are going through what you're going through? And the Bible is silent on that, and the answer is no. But there is an absolute certainty, and that is this. Looking at the cross will tell you what the reason for your suffering isn't. And it isn't that he doesn't love you. It isn't that he has, doesn't have a plan for you. It isn't that he is abandoning you. Because we realize tonight that Jesus Christ was abandoned in suffering so that you would never be abandoned. Jesus Christ was forsaken in suffering so that in our suffering we would have the knowledge and the assurance that God is with us. He is with us. And in our suffering as a child of God, we have the assurance of knowing that there is a plan. There is a purpose. There is redemption. There is healing. There is restoration. There is God's ultimate divine purpose that will be established through this. And I know that he walks with me. And he will never abandon me. He is with me. We have a God who cried out, why? And when you're really in darkness and you're confused and you don't understand what's happening or why, will you remember that the only darkness that can destroy you forever fell into Jesus' heart? The only darkness that can destroy us fell on our Savior. If you're not a Christian, Give me two minutes just to talk to you, and then we're done. And I'm so glad you're here tonight because you need to hear what I'm about to say. The curtain in the temple, the curtain in the temple is what separated a part of the temple where the Jews worshipped, where the Shekinah glory of God dwelled. That's where God's presence dwelled, they believed. And the rest of the tabernacle, the rest of the temple was separated. And according to the Old Testament law, only the holiest man, the high priest, on the holiest day of the year, on Yom Kippur, and the, and the holiest people on the face of the earth, that is the Israelites, the Jews, with the blood sacrifice, day of atonement, were allowed to go back there one day, one man, one time out of the year. 
But the minute that Jesus Christ dies, the Bible says that this incredibly thick curtain was ripped from top to bottom just to let you know who did it. And when it was ripped, it was God's way of saying, this is a sacrifice that ends all sacrifices. And now anybody can go in and anybody can see God. Anybody can connect to God. You don't have to be holy. You don't have to be moral. Anybody can go and meet God. The barrier is gone. The thing that I love about the book of Mark is that the book of Mark begins with these words, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The very first verse in the first chapter says, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark tells us right up front, And throughout the entire gospel of Mark, Mark's been trying to say, Jesus Christ, he's the son of God. Do you see it? Jesus Christ, he's the son of God. Do you see it? And throughout the book of Mark, nobody gets it. Nobody gets it. Everybody's missing it. Jesus Christ, the son of God. Martin, Jesus Christ, son of God. Everybody's everybody's missing the point until we come to this. Because when the centurion, the Bible says, sees Jesus Christ crying out, my God, my way have you forsaken me, and sees the way he dies, he says, surely this man was the son of God. And a Roman would have never uttered those words except to utter for one person, and that was Caesar. When they utter those words, it was for a deity. What's going on here is the Gospel of writer Mark is telling us, this man gets it. This man knows who Jesus is. Now listen to who this man is. He is a centurion. He is not a priest. He is not a teacher of the law. He is not even a Jew. He is a Roman centurion. He is a soldier. He has been through wars. He has killed people. He has done bad things. And yet he... The book of Mark tells us is the first guy who gets it. He's the first guy who gets it. And the gospel writer Mark is saying to all of us tonight, the world is a different place because when the curtain is torn from top to bottom, the whole world is a different place because anybody can now go in and meet with God. You're sitting there today, you're not a Christian, you say, you don't even know me. You don't even know stuff that I've done. And I want to tell you tonight, as sincerely and as honestly as I can, it doesn't matter what you've done. I don't care if you've killed people. I don't care what you have done. God doesn't care what you have done. The way has been opened for you to meet God. It doesn't matter what kind of bad things you've done. It doesn't matter even if you've camped outside the gates of hell the last 20, 30 years of your life. In Jesus Christ, a way has been opened for anybody to go and meet with God. Anybody, anybody, anybody. I don't care if you're a prostitute. I don't care if you're a hitman. I don't care if you've done kinds of things that our society says you should never ever have a second chance in the gospel of Jesus Christ awaits for you a second chance he is for you friend that's the gospel a centurion he is the son of God by words tonight I fully know it will fall on deaf and empty ears unless the Holy Spirit of God takes these words and somehow works in your heart. But without being overly dramatic, friend, I need to tell you, if we miss the significance of tonight 
And I'm not talking about just one time, one good Friday out of the year. I'm talking about this is every second, every moment, every breath of our lives. The well we go back to again and again and again and again and again. When you are tempted to churn from God and live your life your own way, you remember the cross of Jesus Christ. And how the darkness came on him and he was judged for you. So that even in our sin and rebellion, God's grace and mercy, and as the Bible says, his loving kindness leads us to repentance. If you lack joy tonight, you lack passion tonight as a Christian, and your life is one long, spiritually apathetic life, the solution and the answer to being spiritually passionate again is not some manipulation and working yourself up. The answer is to fall down before the cross and say, Son of God, beautiful Savior. Help me to recapture what you mean to me. And for all of us tonight, the key to the gospel exploding in our hearts is recognizing that every breath we take, every moment, every second of our lives, it's us remembering, God, you are the center, I am the periphery. You are the sun, I orbit around you. You are the center. You are my God, you are my anchor, you are Lord, you are Savior. You're my hope. You're my significance. You're my all. And it's in right relationship to that that I find truth and the ability to see and I find life. Bow your heads with me. Carlton, if you would please come up. Cling to thee, O oh, rogue 
by those that you're sitting next to you or behind you, before you. I want to encourage you to come on up. This is one of the nights where I stay around as long as anybody's here that wants to pray with me. I want to be here to pray with you. I saw Pastor David earlier. He will also be up front. And I don't know if some other staff are here, but there'll be folks up here that will pray with you and for you. Take advantage of that before you go. this side of eternity how much it cost perhaps for some of us tonight all we can do is bow down fall down and worship you as our God as you go forth this place tonight yes absolutely be reminded that it's Friday, but Sunday is coming. Leave this place feeling the weight of what he accomplished for you and for me tonight. But remember that that weight has been carried by your Savior. So that as we gather again, church, on Sunday to worship, the joy that we have will not be superficial. The joy that we will have will not be manufactured. The joy we have will not be because of that's what we do on Easter. But the joy will be an inevitable result, an inevitable explosion of the reality that Jesus Christ has risen. And we are His. Yes. Yes. 
tonight, as I said, I want to encourage some of you, all of you, many of you, to stick around and to pray. If you need prayer, we'll be up here to pray with you. Spend some time with God before you go home. And as you leave this place, people of God, sons and daughters of God, to those of you who may not even know him, may his grace, his blessing, and his favor go before you, go behind you, and go beside you. May you walk out of here into the darkness, but knowing that the light has dawned and the light has come. Even as await the fulfillment of his kingdom. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace. Go in peace.